First John chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we obey his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who abides, who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the place that it has in our lives only because of you and your work in our lives, those of us that know you. And we pray, Lord, today as we study it, Lord, would you speak to us? We want to hear from you. We want to be changed, Lord. We want to take these things that have been applied to us by your Holy Spirit to go out and to bring you glory with our lives. We yield our hearts to you now. We recognize this is not merely an intellectual exercise. This is communing with you. We take it seriously, Lord, and we know you take it more seriously. So we ask that you would set this time aside for your holy use, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've begun this great book that the Apostle John wrote. Uh, We began last week, and, you know, he's an elderly man. He's 85 to 90 years old at this point. And so he's the last of the 12. He's he's the last one alive. And and he's known the Lord since, well, he was publicly called to know the Lord in sense of his calling and being a disciple and following and so forth when he was a teenager, probably around 15 or 16 years old. So he's been walking with Christ without his physical presence with him as what he was used to for the longest of all the original disciples. And so he's talking to these believers here, he's encouraging them, and he's dealing with this heresy about which I spoke last week that he's addressing that was the beginning of what would later become called Gnosticism, where they believe that all physical matter is evil, and so uh, they express that 
false belief in a couple different ways. One is they would engage in all kinds of sexual immorality and all kinds of sinful activity and so forth because they believed that their physical body didn't represent who they really were, that the true self is the spirit, which is true, but their physical body, they believed, didn't represent uh, their their relationship with the Lord because all physical uh, matter is evil. And so because of that, they would... Uh, engage in all this activity. The other expression is that they, you know, put out their incredible, hard, legalistic, harsh rules out there that go beyond scripture for sure and engage people in, in, in those types of behaviors as well. And so what John is dealing with here is we begin to see last week that he wanted them to know that Christ came physically. I mean, he, we saw him say, uh, you know, there that I touched him. You know, we handled him. We saw him. It says we gazed upon him, which we saw means to stare, to, to, to look at someone intently and so forth. He's, there, he's not a phantom, not a ghost. He's real. He has physical uh, attributes, and he still does uh, to this day. And John knew that, obviously, as well. And then we saw John use a repeated phrase, if we say, and we see that in, in verses 6 and verse 8 and verse 10. He said, if we, in chapter 1, he said, if we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. And then in verse 8, we saw him say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Repeating words are important to note. And what they represent here, in, as we begin this book in chapter 1, they, they, be, they represent self-deception. It, talk is cheap. You've heard the term. Anyone can say anything. If we say, if we say, if we say. And he says, if we have these, these self-assessments that are erroneous, that are false, we need to know the truth about what our spiritual condition really is. And so we can have a completely, entirely different self-assessment of ourselves spiritually than how God sees us. You know, this coming weekend, Lord willing, we'll be at the men's retreat, and the theme is Jesus speak to your church. And, and we're going to be looking at the different letters in, in Revelation that Jesus wrote to the various churches. And I love the fact that Jesus is assessing the church. He's watching the church. He's watching us individually, but he's also watching us collectively as as church families and so forth. So his assessment, if you look at those letters, many so often is completely different than what they thought of where they were at spiritually. And that's why we need God's word uh, so much because it breaks through all the garbage. It breaks through all the deception. And so what the Apostle John wants is he wants them to recognize any self-deception that's going on in their own lives But also he wants them to recognize the deception of these other false teachers, these Gnostics, who are living ungodly lives. He wants them to be able to recognize these false teachers as the false teachers that they are. And so it was a great protection for them and for us. He begins in verse 1 by saying, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he says, little children. And he notice he says, my little children. He took ownership of them. Did you ever uh, babysit for somebody? I used to do that a little bit. They, didn't, they knew better. They <laughs> had discernment letting me oversee anything, especially young lives, you know. And sometimes after you're done babysitting, you're saying, okay, it's time to be, I'm done. You know, these are your children. You know, you could have them back. I mean, they're not all like that, but some of them like, 
oh man, they're, they're a handful and so forth. But his, his ownership of them, his heart for them, he loved them. And, and he, he says, my little children, I'm responsible for you in a, in a way. I'm responsible for encouraging your faith, to writing to you, to help you grow as believers. And I want you to know that I consider you my little children there. He says, these things I write to you so that you will not sin. And this is the second time of the four instances that we referred to last week where Paul is very, or John rather, is very explicit in saying the reasons why he wrote. I write these things, I write these things, I write these things, I write these things. He's going to say it four times. The last one's in chapter 5. So last week we saw him say, I write these things in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be full. So it's very important we looked at that. So now he said, gets to the second one. I write these things so that you may not sin. I love it. I love that God tells us that we should not sin. And that may seem obvious, but we need to hear that. We need to hear that his expectations of us of how we should live is not up to us. It's up to him and how he defines how our lives should look like or what our lives should, should look like. And, and so he keeps the standard where the standard is. We Sometimes we forget that the standard is still perfection, even though we're believers. And we don't have to meet that perfection in our own effort, of course. We're in Christ now. But still, his standard of what's holy and what's not holy has not changed. And so because of that, he says, I write these things that you may not sin. We need to remember the famous saying that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Sin is destructive. And we need to see that when God tells us to not do something, that it's a protection for us. He's protecting us against something that's bad for us. It's like a little child. They don't know they're a, they're a toddler and they want to reach for that stove. They have no idea. We say, no, don't touch that stove. What's the reasoning behind that? We don't want their hand burned because we love them. And the deception is sin won't hurt us as bad as we think it will. But it, it does. It play, it, it's serious. And so it's very destructive. And so we, he wants to, us to continuously grow in our walk related to our personal holiness. Now, the distance between my committal of sin or when I commit sin and the time that I repent should be getting smaller and smaller and smaller that time because I'm getting closer and closer to him. Someone has said the older you get in the Lord, the way it kind of works is you end up sinning less but repenting more. And I thought about that. I'm like, you know, how is that possible? I started thinking about the fact that when you get close to someone like the Lord, you start getting to know who, how, how amazing he is and how perfect he is. And even though you're not going down the, the other direction, just the definition of holiness is getting more vivid and crystal clear in your mind and in your heart. And thus you start repenting more. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Repentance is a privilege and we should never forget it. Now notice the encouragement John gives us in the second half of verse 1. He says, And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And because I've learned what the word advocate means there, I love that word, advocate. And the picture is a courtroom where God the Father is the judge and the Lord Jesus is our defense attorney. When you you have a public defender, you have a public advocate. Or when you hire a defense attorney, you're hiring a defense advocate for you. And that's who Jesus is for us. He's our advocate, and the word means to come alongside to help. He refers to the Holy Spirit as using the same word. 
He's our helper. He's our advocate. He, he's our paraclete. He's the one that comes alongside and, and helps us. But this is different. The Holy Spirit helps us live a life, practically speaking, in this world, among many other things. But Jesus himself is at the right hand of the Father as our high priest, and he's our advocate. He's our defense attorney in heaven. You ever seen people say, uh, you know, you'll be hearing from my attorney? You ever wanted to say that? You'll be hearing from my attorney. Just want to let you know that. You'll be, I don't know when, but you'll be hearing from my attorney. And so just, you can take that matter up with with him or her. But I've, I've heard people say that, and you look at them like, yeah, you don't have a defense attorney. You can't, they have a group on this week, or, you know, what's, what's going on here? I mean, you don't, you can't afford it. You're just like me. You can't afford an attorney. But related to our walk, we have an attorney. We have a defense attorney in heaven, because Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses us. And he has, he's, he lies, of course, he's a liar, but he tells the truth about us. I mean, it's not like all false claims about us. He's telling the truth about how we fail on any given day. But the thing is, our defense attorney, Jesus Christ, is there, and it's not by accident the Apostle Paul says, the righteous. Did you catch that at the end of verse 1? Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's not by accident that he puts that in there. You can't have a defense attorney that's guilty of the same crimes defending somebody who's, who's on trial. You have to have someone that's innocent or not entangled by the same issue. And he's righteous because he paid the price for our sin. He took the wrath. He's going to get into that. He took that wrath upon himself. And so he can say legitimately before the Father, yes, this person is guilty of these crimes, of this sin. But I already paid the fine. I already paid the price. And, they're, they're, and so I've given them forgiveness already. And so that's supposed to be a comfort. He's not adding this just to give us good theology. It's, it's in a practical way, it's helpful for us because whenever we sin, we don't have that confidence before God. And when we don't have an understanding of God's grace and how it all works in heaven with Jesus being our high priest and so forth, we get discouraged and think that when we're doing better, we need to get closer to God. And when we're not doing that well, we need to be kind of far away from him, especially far away from the rest of the body that he's placed in our lives to help us be stronger. And I've seen it over and over again. The enemy wants to separate us away from the body of Christ, separate us away from approaching God. That's his tactic. And that's why John says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, how do we not sin among many other things? We, not, we stay holy before him because we keep going back to him. Because when you go back to him over and over again, he's changing you. You're becoming less and less sinful in a practical way. And you have confidence to go before him. Because when I sin, when I fail, which is daily, and I think you're a little bit like me, we sin every day because that standard is perfection. We have the wrong motive. We have the wrong thought. We are supposed to do things he tells us to do that we don't do. There's all kinds of ways that we, we sin. We fall short every day. And he wants us to have confidence to go to him every day to ask that forgiveness that he spoke about in chapter 1, verse 9, and let God cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness, and he wants that. But if I go away from him when I fail and don't have that confidence to go before him, even though of all my failure is, is so obvious, then I'm going to not get grow in holiness. Growing in holiness is going to God even in the face of my failure. And that's, that's very important to related to Christian growth. So we have this beautiful advocate in 
Christ. Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Notice he says he himself. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the propitiation. What's that? It's hard enough to say, especially in front of people. Propitiation. Trying to get it out. But it means a satisfied, a satisfying payment. Sometimes you'll hear uh, people, when they preach the gospel, they'll say, he, is, he, he paid that price on that cross. It's the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. This is the verse from which they get that idea. It was a satisfying payment. Now, now John's writing this to help them live more holy so they will not sin. So how, how will me knowing that Jesus paid that satisfying payment for me cause me to not sin? Because that's the intent that John has by the Spirit for these verses. And, and so it's because we have to understand what Jesus did for us on that cross. And we can hear it over and over again, and somehow over time, it can slip from our minds and our hearts, and we can forget the significance of it. But when Jesus died for us on that cross, he took wrath that was due us. We deserve wrath from God for our sin. We're told in Scripture that we're, by nature, children of wrath. That's how we start out. We're born sinners. And so because of that, Jesus took that punishment that we deserved. He took that wrath that we deserved, and and it paid everything. And sometimes that's what trips us up when we sin. When we fall short, we fail, we forget that those sins have already been paid for. It's refreshing to remind ourselves that he's already paid for sins we haven't even committed yet. Which means when we commit them, of course, far beyond just him knowing everything, you know, just in his nature, he already has made provision for that sin. Did, did he want us to commit it? No. Did he cause us to do it? No. But he knew in advance that we would do it. He paid for those sins. And from eternity past, he knew we would commit those sins. He created us knowing we'd commit those sins. He died for us on the cross knowing we'd commit those sins. He saved us knowing that we would commit those sins. We are not surprising him by our failure. And so we have to go to him and say, you know, God, you know what I've done. And I confess, like he said in chapter 1, verse 9, I agree with you that what I did was wrong and it was sinful and I repent of that. So he says he's the propitiation for our sins. And notice he says not, on, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So it wasn't just for the elect. He didn't die just for the elect. This verse clearly says he died for the sins of the whole world. He was willing to do that. And, and, and that's something that we should never forget. We can't pick and choose and think who's going to be saved, who isn't, or maybe they won't receive, maybe they won't. He died for all, everybody's sins. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, referring, I believe, to the cross, being lifted up on that cross. I will draw all men, not some, not the elect. I will draw all men to myself. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul summed it up. And that wrath was serious. We're told in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, yes, this was his son. He loved his son. God so loved the world, he gave his son. He loved him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But he sacrificed that son for us. And it pleased him to do it because justice had to be served. The world doesn't think God is a God who's just. They think he's just love, but he's just too. 
And he died, he, he, he uh, in Jesus, died for our sins, and it was satisfactory. It, was, it satisfied justice, but it also satisfied his desire to have a relationship with us. And it was the biggest expression of love ever expressed in the history of this world was that cross. There is no other better definition of love besides God himself. God is love. But in terms of an act, there is no greater expression of, of love anywhere than the cross. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. He's going to tell us in a couple chapters. This is love. Not that we loved God. That's important to know. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he says the word again. It's an, but it's an expression of his love. He says not that we loved him. We didn't love him, but he loved us and made that possible. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified or acquitted by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It's a huge expression of his love. And he took care of every detail. And that gives us confidence in approaching him after we mess up. Now, notice in verse 2, he also says, um, oh, I already said that. Let's, go, let's keep going here. I'm getting ahead of myself or behind. Can't get behind for myself or whatever, however you want to say it. I'm already on verse 3, so there's hope here. Uh, in verse 3, he begins to work against self-deception. Again, he says, now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. First of all, he includes himself. Notice he says, by this we know that we have come to know him. He's 90 years old. He's walked with the Lord for decades. And he he has his faith being lived out over all those years. And he says, if we keep his commandments. And he says, keep, it means obey. And it's in a, a continuous tense there. Continuously keeping his commandments. That's how we know we have come to know him. The Apostle John heard the Lord Jesus speak a lot about obeying commandments. He heard Jesus say, and he mentioned in his gospel, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then in John chapter 14, John wrote this in his gospel. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's interesting. I want God to manifest himself to me. Then obey him. Obey his word. When you obey his word, he manifests himself to you in a special way. He continued in verse 23 of chapter 14. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Amazing that he would do that. That he would have that much intimacy with us. And all of that is increased by our obedience to him. Jesus stresses love should be the motivation related to our obedience. And that's very important because many of us are brought up in different backgrounds where obedience to our parents represented different things or obedience to things in life represented different things to us, even today. Because it's been said there's three different ways or motivations to obey. One is we have to, second, we need to, and three, we want to. So that's important because when we, when we have to, it's like, well, if we don't, bad things will happen. Fear, you know, that we're going to experience certain things that are bad, like our kids. If you don't do this, then this is going to happen. And then there's the, the, the need to, where I'm going to get something positive out of it. I need to go to work tomorrow. 
because I need a paycheck. So I'm obeying that, uh, that whole system because I need to, to provide for myself. But then there's the want to, where you obey something because you want to obey it. Like you think of your kids and you catch them doing something good, not because you've threatened their lives, not because you've given them, you know, you promised, you know, a thousand dollar allowance or whatever. They're not going to get anything in return. They just want to do it because they want to bless you. And that's what we aim for and we work towards as parents. Hopefully we see that when they're older, that they'll do things because it's because they want to. And that's getting to the, the core of what he's getting at here with us. Our relationship needs to be a love relationship with God. And it is true that all three of those things, in a, in a sense, are true. We have to obey the Lord. We, we, uh, um, we need to obey the Lord. And, and, but he wants us to want to obey him because we love him. And so he, he's working towards that. And some of us as new believers, just like children, physical children, Sometimes it's only because, oh, I don't want to reap the consequences of my sin, you know, or I want this, you know, and so forth. But as we grow, then we start wanting to do it because we want to bless his heart because of all that he's done for us. And John's going to get into it. We love him because he first loved us. That's the want to. And the want to is synonymous with the get to. I get to love him. I get to obey him. It's the same thing. It's a privilege because he really does see it. It really does make a difference in his heart how we live our lives. And it blesses him. He sees every little thing. I heard this recently, this teacher teach on obedience and so forth. And he talked about the deception that we have as believers, especially in our culture where we value knowledge so much and we can assess our spiritual health by what we know instead of what we're doing. And he says, what if your teenager, you told your teenager to clean their room. And then they said, okay, got it. I'm going to study about what you've said. And I'm going to learn everything about what you said about cleaning my room. I'm going to get into the original pig Latin. And I'm going to study and get help. I'm going to invite people over. We're going to study together about how you said to clean my room. And we're going to become experts in everything about cleaning my room. And you're like, okay, that's great. You can do all that. But when are you going to clean it? I actually want you to clean the room instead of just talking about it, studying about it. I want you to do it. And they're like, well, that's kind of extreme. They only do that in other cultures. They do that in third world countries, you know, where it matters and, and there's persecution and so forth. Those are the ones that really obey and clean their rooms. No, not at all. It's like, no, they do it here. And those that are over there, are, are, you know, obeying the Lord in everything that God's called them to obey him in. So it's, it's a really good point for us because it, we think that because we're not saved by our works, and we're not for sure, he doesn't really care so much about our works and our obedience, and he does. He cares a lot about it. And it's the, it's the assessment. It is the, basically the assessment related to our spiritual condition. And so really good reminder for us. Verse 5. Actually, did I do four? I'm just confused all over the place today. He who says, I know him, verse four, and does not obey his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There we go. Now we're back on track. So notice he says, he who says. He changed the personal pronoun. Not we now. Not if we say. He's talking about somebody else now. He's helping them recognize these false teachers, these Gnostics. And he's saying, if he who says, I know him, does not obey his commandments is a liar, and the truth is is not in him. That's clarity. <laughs> That's, just say it like it is, John. I mean, I love that about God's word. 
doesn't beat around the bush, tells us the, the truth, it's succinct, it's to the point, and we need it. And so anyone that says, oh, I know him, I mean, look at the Grammys or look at the Academy Awards or, you know, all these things where people are wearing crosses and giving praise to God or whatever, and many of them, their lives look nothing like Christ at all. They're, they're, they're verse 4. They're saying, I know him. But God's word says, you don't obey my commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. That's clarity. And that's a good thing to have wash over our hearts. Now, now I really mean it. We'll get to verse 5 here. <laughs> but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know we are in him. So I want us to see that he says, truly the love of God is perfected in us. Do you see that? The word perfected means completed. So he's saying, if you want to experience the love of God in a significant way, obey him. You obey the Lord, you experience his love. That's the motivation for his commandments. And he's preventing us from having horrible things happen in our lives by us living a life of obedience to him. And then he says in verse 6, He who abides, who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. And he's going to get into this word abide here in verse 6. And it means to make your dwelling in something or to settle down and make your home in something. And like a big chair or a couch or whatever, where you just make yourself comfortable and you settle down. That's the key idea of it, to settle down into something. And he's going to mention it five times, you know, in the, in the singular form and 12 times in the plural form. And so he's going to be talking a lot about abiding, 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 abiding. And it just means to rest in our relationship with him. And he says, he who says that he abides in him has to walk as Jesus walked. Because Jesus is the quintessential definition of holiness. There is no better definition than to look to Jesus. And man wants to put a lot of man-made rules and man-made things on us that, that they say is holy, means holiness and represents holiness, but in actuality it's not. It's, it's, not, it's man-made rules. And he says we have to walk as Jesus walked. Now, we can look at that and get discouraged and say, well, I'm never going to live up completely to how Jesus walked, obviously, so I'm not even going to try. And that's a cop-out. He doesn't say that. He says we need to continue to grow. We need to continue to grow in holiness. And just because I can never reach that level doesn't mean I have an out now to just give up trying and to be growing practically in my walk. Verse 7, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John is speaking of an old commandment and a new commandment here. And I believe the the commandment about which he is speaking is love, to love God and to love uh, one another. And so they first heard about that, he says that, at the end of verse 7. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. It's the gospel, it's, it's how to love God, how he loves us, and so forth, how to love one another. And then he speaks of this new commandment in verse 8. And so I believe John is speaking of new as in the sense of something that's been renewed, that they already understood. It's new, like when you check something, a book out at the equipping library, and you've had it out for a couple of weeks, and it's time to bring it back. And you say to your spouse maybe, hey, I'm going to go get a new book on Sunday. Well, you don't mean a new, new book, like they just bought it at the store. You're saying a new, a new kind of book for me at the, at the moment. 
So it's like something that's renewed and so forth. So he says, I'm giving you something that's new in the sense that it means more to you now than it did when you first heard it, when you first came to know Christ, because there's more revelation associated with it now, because it's true in him. He loves you. He loves, he knows you love him and so forth. And it's, he's done a work in you through that love. And you've seen that, you've witnessed it, and you've seen now that darkness is passing away, that this, this world is passing away, and the true light is already shining. In other words, in your hearts, you can see that, that God is progressing this whole thing, and it's leading towards an end. And there will come a day when that that whole thing is culminated in, in, in climax in God coming back to this earth and taking us to be with him with new bodies and so forth. And so he's saying, I'm not telling you anything new here, but I'm renewing it for you and bringing it up in a fresh way. That's the essence, I believe, in verses um, 7 and 8. Verse 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So another he who says statement. <laughs> he who says he is in the light. Because anybody can claim anything. Again, talk is cheap. But how does my life line up with Scripture? Does it line up with what the Bible says a believer is? And he says here, you cannot hate his brother. I believe he's talking about in the church. He cannot hate his brother and still be in the light. It's impossible. Because when God comes into a life... He changes that life and makes he, the hatred, the way, just hating someone out of, out of nowhere is not a characteristic of a child of God. He changes us. He melts our heart with his love. He, because we've had his love and his grace applied to our hearts and applied to our spirits, it changes how we deal with people. Because we've been forgiven of so much, it's supposed to be uh, easier, at least, to, to forgive other people because of how we've been forgiven. So he's saying those other people that claim to be in the light, they hate their brother. You can know that they're in darkness until now. doesn't matter what they say. doesn't matter how often they go to church. doesn't matter what position or title they have. You can know by the Spirit of God that they're in darkness until now. Verse 10. He who loves... So he's moving on beyond not just says. He now he's actually someone that actually does it. He who loves his brother abides, there's our word again, abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now this word stumble there is the word that we've looked at many times. The word scandal on it, it means to, to stumble there. And he's, and he's saying when someone loves and doesn't hate, there's no there's nothing going on inside of them that can stumble themselves or other people. That they're, they're, they have nothing that encumbers themselves or anybody else. And he's saying it's a blessing. So he says those people that don't love, that hate their brother, they don't have that. And they, ha- they are a cause for stumbling in, in, their, in what's coming through their lives. And then he gives more uh, in illustration to it in verse 11. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So one of the symptoms of being in darkness is that you hate people, number one. And number two, another characteristic of darkness, of how it affects a human life, is that it blinds you from making proper judgments in life. And your moral compass is not functioning the way that God wants it to function. So he says, that's the evidence. That's, who, that's what you see. You see people walking in darkness with their, eye, their, their uh, eyes blinded. 
It's because, they're, because that's what their lives represent. And so don't be surprised when you see it. Now, he had some encouragement in verses 12 through 14. He takes a break, and he wants to encourage them in terms of their relationship with God. Because at this point, it's very easy for those recipients to say, oh, no, he's talking about us. <laughs> you know, we're not believers. You know, we're not in the truth. And so he gives some encouragement there, and he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you uh, for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. So we'll just stop there for a minute. So he says, no matter what you, where you're at, your father, your, I mean, some people like to use this as spiritual fathers, spiritual young men, st- spiritual little children, which I think he did mean earlier and other times when he says that, but I think he's just making a general statement. I believe he's talking about real physical ages with people and so forth because, uh, because, because he talks about these young men being strong and, and in the next verse. And so I, I think that that is true of, of youth. You know, you're stronger, you're physically stronger, but he's getting to something greater than that. And he says in verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So what's the common denominators for these people, especially the young men here? They're strong physically, of course, but I believe they're also strong spiritually because he says, and the word of God abides in you. And the other common denominator is that they've overcome the w- wicked one. Notice it's the past tense, overcome. They have, they're not in heaven yet. They'll have overcome in a different way when they're in heaven. This is something entirely different. They've already overcome the wicked one because they've known Christ. And Christ has given them the power to live a different kind of life. And they've taken advantage of that. And they've lived a different kind of life that's been pleasing to God. And so he doesn't want them to misunderstand. I'm saying all these things because I'm not thinking that you all are in this category. You know the Lord. You've overcome the the evil one. You've overcome the wicked one. God's word abides in you. And you've, you've... been, you've overcome the enemy and so forth, and, and so I want to bring you encouragement. Now he gives some more exhortation here in verse 15. He says, but do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now he's not telling us to hate planet Earth. I hate this planet. You know, he's not saying that. Well, he's not saying that we can't enjoy things in, in, in life and so forth. We're told that every good and perfect gift is from above. God has given us things to, to enjoy and so forth. But he's talking about this, and he's going to get into more specificity in verse 16. But he's talking about this, this world system, the world system that draws us away from God and, and the philosophy of this world that's anti-Christ. He's going to get into that in the coming chapters, the spirit of anti-Christ. So that's what he's talking about. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those that are completely given over to the ways of this world and the, and, and the sin of this world and the temptations and so forth of this world, they don't have the love of the Father in them. That's one of the things that we can see among us as we grow is we can see love come from our lives. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And so he says, if you're engaged in all those things, you won't see love coming out of that life, the, the love of the Father. But he says, stop, do not love this world. And the tenses are, stop already loving this world. 
That's what he's, when he says do not love the world, he's saying you're already, you know, you have that tendency already. Don't, don't continue going along down that road. And then he defines it in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this goes back all the way to the garden. You know, you think about Eve's temptation there in the Garden of Eden with being tempted to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that the enemy, Satan, was tempting her. And it, we're, we're told in, in Genesis chapter 3 that, that Eve saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And then she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. And then she knew that it was good for wisdom or, or that desirable to make one wise, and that was appealing to the pride of life. But it goes all the way through the history of God's people. Even God told the, 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 the children of Israel, when you have a king someday, make sure that they don't multiply gold and silver, they don't multiply wives, they don't uh, multiply horses, that, you know, all these things that appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's just the makeup of temptation. We have our sinful nature, and it's a, it, what we see, we can sin with our eyes. We can, I mean, Jesus said, if, if you lust after a woman and you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He says, don't covet. We usually don't covet physically. We usually don't, you know, that's already getting into stealing. <laughs> you know, it's like you covet when you see something that you like that's not yours, and you covet that thing. That has to do with the eyes and the heart and the sinful nature and so forth. And that shouldn't be found in the child of God. And then lastly, in verse 17, he says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides, there's our word again, abides forever. And that's good for us to see as believers. That this world isn't going to continue like it's continuing forever. There's going to come an end to it. God's going to interrupt mankind's history again First of all, with taking the, snatching the church out. And then at the, midway through the seven-year tribulation, then the wrath of God's going to be poured out on this world. And, and it's going to be horrific. Only a fourth of the world's population will be left at the end of that seven years. Only 25%. Do the math. We have like, what, seven billion people? Or I don't know how many billion people, but we're not very many people left. That's massive, massive judgment coming in this world and he says if you are going along with the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life you're loving this world you're loving the things of this world in a sinful way you are then you are aligning yourself with that with that that's going to be uh, or with that which it's going to be destroyed and he says there's a warning associated with it but if you follow God's will and you serve him you're going to abide forever and that's the reward. So just the exhortation to live a life that's pleasing to him, to protect ourselves by God's word and through the body of Christ against self-deception related to our spiritual condition. We need to measure our lives by this book. This is the standard. Not any, well, the best-selling Christian books in the bookstore, not Christian television for sure, uh, not other believers. That's, they're not the standard. The standard is God's word. And when we have someone that knows God's word, that loves us, that's telling us the truth from God's word, we need to accept that, those truths, even if they contradict what our own self-assessment is about our lives. Because God's very direct, he's very blunt about his expectations related to us. He's patient, he's long-suffering, but he has a standard. And it's, it's a good exhortation for us to be reminded of that uh, this morning. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you for all that you were. There's so much here. We are so grateful for it. We ask, Lord, that you would take these verses by your Holy Spirit and use them in our lives to make us more like you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you give us your word to break through all the self-deception and the deception that's out there in this world so that we can know the truth. We thank you, Lord, that we get to look at all these things all the way through, verse by verse, together in unity as a family, so we can support one another in our struggles and pray for one another as we work through these things. We thank you for the body of Christ this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.